0: All right, let me get to my notes. If you have Bibles um, or a Bible on your cell phone, uh, feel free to turn to Philippians. And uh, let me begin with prayer. Before I do so, with some friends from Sanford today just say hello to the Walls family are here. And my, my colleague, Ken Matthews, is here. Um, so I'm very glad to have him. Ken, Ken's been with me now for 12 years. And uh, put up with a lot of my shenanigans. He's been a very dear friend, so I'm glad to have him this morning. And anything you need to correct, Ken, this morning, feel free. You've got an open. I'm just glad you go to church. Oh, you're not really here. You're you're here to make sure it's true. I see. I knew it. I knew something was going on. (laughs) Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that you brought us together on this Lord's Day, and what a gift to your people that you let us come together every week to be reminded of who we are and our need of Jesus and our, our hope of the gospel and, and the way in which your word can shape and direct and guide us as we enter into that. So, Lord, I pray that you'll bless us during this time together with Philippians, that you will open our hearts and our minds. God, we are very aware that none of us can make the Bible happen. That, that's within your purview, and I ask that you will do it today. By the power of your spirit and we ask these things in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit Amen well I think we're starting a, th- a series today um, that if my memory serves me correctly we go to a certain moment we'll take a break so I think we have two weeks together we're going to take a break someone else is coming in for a couple weeks series and then we'll come back uh, to Philippians and by that time we'll probably be in Philippians chapter 1 verse 7 I imagine yeah. I, I don't know uh, no, I'm, I'm going to try we'll work hard uh, to not get way late before we do that though I'm curious just for my own sake how many of you have done a Bible study on Philippians before And so, several of you all um, and have you what, what did you What did you use I'm not really a resource I don't know resources all the way I was going to mention a few to you today um, Do you? was it a Tim Keller thing or something? Sarah, what did you do? What did I do? Um, I taught it, I So you just used the Bible. Um, no, I used the Bible and I used really Okay. Did your small group do it, Victor? I think so. I think we used John Stott. John Stott. Okay, well, he's, he's, he knows what he's doing. Uh, <laughs> I brought two resources today um, for you, just to, if you wanted to write them down, that aren't... Uh, thick, heavy-going go- heavy commentaries on Philippians. One is uh, D. A. Carson's Basic for Believers. Um, I-, I-, I have had this book uh, since you know the late, the mid '90s. It was given to me by someone who was discipling me in college, and I still have it. This was in the days when I put contact paper on my soft-cover books. I was really had a little. I, I had some OCD issues going on then. <laughs> I still kind of do, actually. Um, this this is a very good series. If you're looking for a small group Bible study, um, very accessible. D.A. Carson's a leading evangelical New Testament scholar. Um, these are written like small sermons. I I heartily commend it to you, and I'll, I'll be leaning on it a lot through the series. Another one that I, I did know all that, and I don't know this series all that well, um, but it's by Lynn Kohick, who I think teaches up at Wheaton College in uh, Chicago. Um, and Lynn has written... Um, I've, she's a very nice gal. Very thoughtful commentary on Philippians. That's pastoral. This, I think, would be good for small group discussions because it actually thinks about the text in our world. I, I, I don't know this series, but it's the Story of God Bible Commentary. That that might be something for you, small group leaders who are looking for resources. I imagine all of these are pretty good. Look, at Frank Thielman on the back it must be good. My colleague wrote on it. Libby. Uh, C-O-H-I-C-K Lynn Kohick. I think that's how you say it. I don't know how to say her name but, um, So I, I commend those uh, to you uh, I doubt it Actually No I haven't I, I need to I'll make myself a I'll make myself a note Would you Should I do that? Okay um, Alright Note Bookstore Now the key is whether or not I'll remember what that note means In three days But that's okay <laughs> All right, so to, to Philippians. Uh, Philippians has been a long friend um, for me, and, but I haven't I haven't spent time with it in a while. Uh, so I think you know, I've told you all this before. I, I you know I pay the bills by teaching Hebrew and you know boring students to tears on that kind of thing and. Um, you know, that's how, that's how I pay the bills. They, they don't let Ken and I get too near the New Testament. They try to keep our hands off of that. You know, handle Moses all you want, but they keep us away from Jesus, I guess. Um, uh, but, uh, so it's you, you, you all are the people where I get to do, you know, wrestle with the New Testament. So I get, I, this is an opportunity for me to go back to, to spend some time with Philippians. If you'll recall, um, a year ago we did Colossians. Um, for those of you who are around, so we work through Colossians. Philippians is, like Colossians, a, a prison epistle. Paul, we think, is writing this from, from prison uh, to Philippi. You're going to see some of the language about Paul being helped by the Philippians in his in his imprisonment. Um, that's going to ring through through this letter. Um, so let, let me say a couple things about, about Philippians and, and the book itself and why this book has been meaningful to me. Um, uh, they, our, our, our sixth graders are on their confirmation weekend excursion. Um, my 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 niece is there. My my son is there. Um, who you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> but they're supposed to choose a life verse. This is part of the confirmation process, and we've not been a part of this confirmation thing before. This is new for us. Um, Many of you, I think, are familiar with it. It's one of the things that our church really does well. I'm, I'm I'm very grateful. You know, they 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 talk and they lead into this very clearly. We want to think about expanding their knowledge of the faith, but this is about helping these sixth graders uh, come into a deeper relationship with Jesus. We're like, well, that's great. I mean, that's what we want. You know, for our go go at it. You I know, mean, I'm sitting with you know William. My wife has sat with him and. You know, as he's cramming his homework for Sunday morning, and you know, watching Duke, you know, UNC basketball, or something. But you know, it's not perfect in our home, but um, but he's he's doing this. And what what's he doing? Well, you know, tell me tell me three things you learned from the Nicene Creed. Well, that's pretty good. Um, what what are what are the Ten Commandments? And tell us what you think those mean. I mean, this is great stuff for sixth grade kids to be working through. And one of the things they had to do was a life first. I don't think in terms of life verses anymore. You know, people, if someone asks me, what's your life verse? Could you answer that? I, I don't think in those ways. I grew up in a world that kind of thought in those ways. Um, but I don't have necessarily a life verse. Um, maybe it's the verse where Abraham told Sarah to call him Lord. I like that. I'm try that. Yeah, like that, Naomi? Um, okay, it won't be that one. Okay. Um, but as, as I look back on the days when Philippians was so meaningful to my own my own journey of faith um, it was Philippians 310 I, I do think when I look back on my late teenage early adulthood um, Philippians 3:10 was the verse that shaped everything for me that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering um, that that I may know him and I'll tell you how part of that occurred for me was working at a Christian camp in high school, um, looking at Philippians. I still remember this very meaningful. This, this is one of those pillar of rocks you know, that we look back in our lives to see where God has led us. Um, reading Philippians in a cabin in the mountains of North Carolina along uh, with J.I. Packer's Knowing God. Boy, has J.I. Packer had an influence on Christians all over our world. And for me, as a 17-year-old boy, that was the first thing real kind of theology i'd ever read and i was overwhelmed i want to know god uh, and not just to know god but enter into the reality of that union with him so that it can shape our existence that's what philippians is about and i think that's why carson entitled his book basics for believers i mean if you're discipling a new convert to jesus and you're like well where, where do we start what do we talk about Philippians is a great place to do that, and frankly, wherever you are along the way in your journey of faith, Philippians is a good place uh, to do that, and that's that's why I've chosen this book. And hopefully, we'll just see see what uh, where it goes. Okay, so today my goal in our limited amount of time is to get through verse eleven, and we're just going to do this inductively. Right, this is going to be verse by verse. We'll read a verse, we'll talk about it, we'll go on to the next verse. There's not going to be a, no no smoke and mirrors. No dogs or ponies, just straightforward. Let's look at the Bible together. Um, So let's read this beginning in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, a servants of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to get off the the highway here on the exit ramp, but I will for a second. Servants of Christ Jesus. Um, That's a significant understanding that Paul describes here. Of what it is to be an apostle of Jesus, his particular vocational identity, which is, by the way, I don't think is transferable. I, I don't, I, you know, you might not like. I don't know where you are on some of these things, but I, I think the apostles are gone, right? The, the apostolic presence that we have now is, well, it's Philippians, it's the Bible. Um, but here's Paul in his apostolic identity, um, identifying himself and his apostolicity by identifying himself as a servant, a doulos right a uh, that's the, the, a, a slave someone that's 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 bound to the authority of someone else that's that's Paul's identity now i'm pretty persuaded and i won't go into i'm just going to assert this i'm not going to argue for it but i'm pretty persuaded that when paul is thinking in servant terms um throughout all of his epistles especially in second corinthians but throughout all of his epistles i do think paul is borrowing language from isaiah and there's a movement that occurs in Isaiah. If you remember this, there's a movement that emphasizes in the first, and say in chapters 40 to 55. Um, think Good Friday, right? Isaiah chapter 53. We call Isaiah 53 the fourth. Do you know this term, Servant Song? Right. There's there's four servant songs. Um, I I always put that that term servant song in scare quotes because it it comes with some baggage. Um, But it's fair enough. Servant songs. Beginning in chapter 42, there's one in 49. There's a servant song in 51. And then the apex is, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's this servant figure um, who is the means that God uses to... Redeem his people and the world. That's why we read the Servant Song on Good Friday. It is a cross and resurrection text. Isaiah chapter fifty three ten. By the knowledge of him, will many be made righteous. The knowledge of who? The one that died and suffered on, on their account. So that's important. But this is something that I don't. A lot of Isaiah people who sort of read this and know about the servant might lose track of, or may not be aware of. After Isaiah chapter fifty three. You will never find that term servant in the singular again. It's, it's uh, Here's Hebrew 101. It's eved is the Hebrew term, servant. And after that, it's evadim, plural, servants. So in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, we see the term servants, plural, appear. And through the rest of Isaiah, all the way to chapter 66, it's those figures, the servants, plural, that are the main servants um dramatic figures in the rest of Isaiah's massive book. And who are these servants, plural? Well, they're the ones in Isaiah chapter 50 who obey in obedience the word of the servant. I think they're the ones in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, who are announcing and heralding the, the arrival of the kingdom of God through the person and work of this servant. They're the ones who, in union with the servant, Isaiah chapters, I think 63 and 64, they suffer intention and anticipation in light of their identity in the servant. So, in other words, the servant spawns off these servants, plural. And I'm, I'm pretty persuaded that when Paul borrows terms from his culture, like doulos, and everyone in the first century world would have understood what a doulos, or a servant, is. Paul is a master at what I call linguistic jujitsu, right? I mean, he will take a word that's common to the culture, bring it into his apostolic letters, and flip it over, right over his back. Um, Here's another one. Um, Reconciliation. That's a term, by the way, that we think, as far as I know, only Paul uses that term in the New Testament. Catalasso reconciliation, and here's something fascinating about that term. If you find it in sort of the common Greco-Roman language of the day, this is how reconciliation was conceived and understood. Reconciliation is, let's say, uh, I'll talk my mother. She's here. So let's say that I have offended my mother, right? And I'm, if I have, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but let, let's say I've offended my mother. For reconciliation to occur, the offending party. Has to reconcile him or herself to the one who's been offended. That's, everyone would have understood. That's how reconciliation occurs. The offending party reconciles themselves to the one that they offended. And what does Paul do in 2 Corinthians? He flips that thing right over. Takes the term, but infuses it with a gospel understanding. Why? We don't reconcile ourselves to the one we offended. He has reconciled us to Him. Right, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, I think Paul does something similar with servant. What does it mean to be a servant? It's this Isaianic frame. It's uh, the ones who have identified themselves to the scandal of the servant that we'll hear about in Isaiah chapter 53. And that's Paul right out of the gate in the first verse saying, Just so you know who I am, what my identity is, I'm not claiming the identity of ecclesial authority. He doesn't, come, he doesn't claim it. He says, if you want to know why I have ecclesial authority or why I have ap- apostolic credentials, then I'm going to let you know who I am, and I'm, that is, I'm a servant. Paul does something very similar in 2 Corinthians. You remember, there was a challenge in, this, in the community of Corinth about Paul's legitimacy to his apostolic claim. Are you really an apostle? I mean, this, this burdened Paul. Right, Because it forced Paul to do something that Paul did not like doing. And that was referring to himself. Now, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Except for a possible allusion in Galatians 1. You know, don't you, that in the Pauline epistles, Romans all the way to Philemon, Paul never once recounts the narrative of his conversion. Paul doesn't do that. We get it in Acts. Right? We get the narrative there from the good Dr. Luke. But Paul doesn't tell us, I was on the way, I was, th- I was on the way to do this, and then that happened, and also the light came, and he doesn't, he's, he's slow to do that. And whenever Paul is forced to prove his apostolic credentials, you can tell he's embarrassed. Well, what does he say in 2 Corinthians? I, I feel foolish being forced to do this. But okay, you've pushed me to it, so now I'm going to give you my apostolic credentials. I'm going to give you my resume. Right, my CV, so that you know who I am. And what does Paul tell him? Well, I was shipwrecked. I got beaten three times in this place. Uh, there, you know, even got bit by a snake uh, or something. Like you know, all this. stuff What does Paul do? He, maybe indelicate, but but he 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 pulls his shirt up and lets people see his scars. You want to know that I'm really a servant of Jesus, that I'm really an apostle? Well, I'm going to let you see my scars. Because I'm not going to give you necessarily the kind of proof you want. I'm going to let you give the proof. That God demonstrates, that he demonstrated in his son in the foolishness of the cross. How does Jesus prove his identity and his glory? He does so on the cross. How does Paul prove his apostolicity? By, by telling people and giving people his credentials as a servant. That's who I am. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Bad news, that's, that's not even the end of verse 1. We'll keep going. <laughs> uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. Um, to all the saints. This is a common expression for Paul. He identifies them as holy ones, right? Um, now, with Philippi, and as we get into this, we might think that works. I mean, this community, right? Like, if you get, got to choose out of all the Christian communities um, in the New Testament, Galatia, Corinth, Ephesus, these places that, and, and you say, you can go to one to one potluck dinner after church on a sunday morning to one of these communities i'm going to philippi i'm avoiding corinth i don't that's place is a mess <laughs> um ephesus problems colossae they're fiddling with some weird heresies going on there um i i'd like uh, galatia they're all sort of bent up over whether or not you know the law still applies so i i'd like to go to philippi they they're a wonderful so they might really be from our term saints but here's the problem Paul uses that term in Corinth, in the Corinthian letters. He uses that term in Ephesus. He uses it with the church at Colossae. They're all saints and not very saintly. right? I mean, this says something about Paul's understanding of what it means to be in covenant communion with God by the Son. They're a saintly community because of what God has determined them to be, not because of any moment of self-achievement. You know, they don't. They don't get to say, you know, we worked hard on our capital campaign and we we achieved sainthood last year. No, <laughs> your saint. Your saint. I don't know why the capital campaign came up, but your sainthood is something that is a derivative of your union with your Father and the Son by the Spirit. It's a derivative reality. I also think Paul's tapping into, and you can already get a sense of where where we're we'll going throughout this whole series. I think Paul breathes the Old Testament. Now, I just don't, I don't think, I can't make sense of Paul apart from the Old Testament. And calling this people here a holy community is certainly, certainly resonates with the understanding of what Israel was called to be and to do in the Old Testament. You will be a royal priesthood. You will be a holy people. Be ye holy, for I am holy. So he's calling them into something, but he's calling them into something that they are fully and completely. Their holiness is derivative of who they are in Jesus. So to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with their overseers, um, their deacons. I will not talk about church politics. We'll move on. (laughs) Then verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. After Paul gives his introduction in these first two verses, he's off. And what does Paul do first? I love this. Paul talks to them about his prayers for them. And he's going to pray for them. In other words, I want to show you my affection for you, Philippi. And I'm going to do so by letting you know how I talk to God about you. Look look at verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. Now this is tricky, and it's one of those places right out of the gate where we're going to get geeky for a second, okay? Okay. Most of the commentators on this particular verse in Philippians actually think, based on Greek grammar, I know this is don't don't let me lose you, All right? But based on Greek grammar, that Paul is not telling them that he thanks God because of his remembrances of them, but because they have remembered him. And I think that's probably the right reading. Now, you know, if you if, it, the, If you walk out of here, forget that. No worries. You will be fine. Okay? Um, But verse 3, I think, might be read more properly as, I thank my God because of all of your remembrances of me. Or every time you remembered me. And, and here's another reason why that reading, I think, works well in the context, not just because of the Greek grammar, but also because of the larger context. This is Paul thanking the Philippians that they remembered him in his chains. That's a public scandal. They've linked themselves to Paul in his scandal, in his own uh, imprisonment. So he says, I thank God every time I pray. That you all have remembered me. Now, if it's the other reading, that's fine too, right? I thank my God every time I remember you. I'm th- when I think of you, my heart bubbles over with thanksgiving. That's fine, but I do think the better reading is Paul is thanking them that they are rem- that he's thanking God that the Philippians have remembered him in his imprisonment. And they'll look at verse four. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This happens every time I pray, and why do I? What happens when I pray? My heart is filled with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day unto now. When Paul thinks of the church at Philippi, his heart is filled with joy. Um, They have—he's filled with gratitude for what they have done for him because they've partnered with him in the gospel even though that partnership will cost them their public reputation. Their partnership is with the man who's been imprisoned. It's a partnership in the gospel. And then what does Paul go on to pray? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, you've been faithful to me. You've been loyal to me. You haven't let go of your, your loyalty to me. And I am sure of this. Here we go. That he who began a good work in you will perform it or bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Boy, there's a verse that a lot of us know, right? He who began a good work in you will perform it and complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about this verse for a few minutes. Number one, this verse is riddled with Paul's confidence. I love that. It's his confidence. Um, do any of you read... uh Wall Street Journal on the weekends. I I I I take it. on. I, take, I was reading. Uh, I always, I just look forward to Peggy. Whatever Peggy Noonan said, I'll just be interested, right? I, I know a little bit I'm going to read it. Um, so here's Peggy Noonan, and uh and she she had this long uh piece uh, in this in the weekend edition about uh, pre- uh President Trump's uh Tuesday night speech. Um, what was it Tuesday night? Anyway, to to the joint sessions of Congress. Um, And she said something. uh, She said, you know, people often think of Ronald Reagan as someone who was marked by confidence. I mean, by optimism. That's what she said. He was optimistic. He could just take you in a room and he always said, she said, I know him. He was not optimistic. And he did not believe that necessarily good things would come tomorrow. He didn't. But one thing that he was, was confident. And then she began to talk about Donald Trump. See, this is an area where I think Paul would go, hmm, when he says, when Paul says, I'm confident, right, it's not that kind of confidence. I'm not not being pejorative against what she's saying about Reagan and Trump, that's a different kind of conversation. But that's not what Paul's conception of confidence is. And it's a kind of internal confidence that I know the political landscape is complicated, but I'm going to give a political vision and an action plan, and we're going to be confident, and we're going to do it. We're just going to do it. We're going to go forward. That's, by the way, why why academics would make horrible politicians and often very bad church leaders, right? Uh, I say why because what does an academic do? Well, I see your point from this thing, and then I see your point from this thing. what do you do? Well, well what do you think? Well, it could be that, could be this, could be this. Yeah, well, make a decision, right? Make it, make move forward. There's a history of that in the in the, in the Anglican world. Think, anyway, I won't go down. There. Um, <laughs> So, um, th- th- but that's not Paul's confidence. It's not that kind of political confidence. I've enacted a plan and we're going to see it through no matter what the prevailing voices, da da da. No. It's a confidence in the fact that God makes good on his promises. That's apostolic confidence. That's Christian confidence. I'm confident in you, Philippi. And think about this. I mean, you have to remember that Paul's a real human being, right? Paul's very clear when he gives those apostolic credentials in 2 Corinthians. Do you remember the last thing he says? I'm riddled with the burden of the churches. I'm burdened by, by Philippi. I'm not there now. Um, I've left them and, and they're, they're, they're whatever's going on. Or, or, he's burdened by, it. so don't think that Paul doesn't, isn't weighed down emotionally and psychologically by the real existential realities of church life. He is. But in the midst of those struggles that Paul's very candid about, he can claim something like this in Philippians 1.6, I'm confident for you, Philippi, even though I'm here in chains, even though I have to send you letters and I'm not personally present, I am confident that the work of God in your midst is not dependent on me. He will. He began it, and he will see it through to, and here's a word that's a very Matthean word from Matthew's Gospel, he will bring it through to completion, He's going to bring it through to maturity. Um, That's a concern that Paul has through all of his letters. What does he say in Colossians at the end of chapter 1? Training and discipling all men and women so that they may be mature and complete in Christ. Paul, for lack of a better term, he wants us to grow up in our faith. He wants us to mature in what? In the gift and the knowledge of who God is and the implications that that that, that has for the entirety of our existence. And here he's telling them, and I'm confident that God, who began that work, will bring it to completion and maturity in you. I'm confident. You know, that, that hit me as I was thinking about this for this morning with you all. That's a hard thing to say, I think, and really mean it. Um... Let me illustrate this in the Gentilette home. All right, so I'm I'm uh, I'm coaching seven and eight year old baseball this year. Right, um, which means I'm going to heaven. So you know, <laughs> yeah. um, no, but this is they're a great group of kids. I've never coached this age group for the past three years. I've coached nine and ten. Um, I've coached two years of 11 and, or one year of 11 and 12 year old baseball, even an all star team, you know, and that, by the way, 11, 12, that's real baseball. We got pitchers, lead off steals. I mean, the whole nine yards, um, that's the real deal. And I've always coached my oldest son. Um, well, I don't think I'm helpful to him anymore. You know, my oldest son. So I cut him loose, right? You go, you're going to need just to go. You finish your 12 year old baseball with another coach. I'll cheer from the stands. I have a rule. That I tell all parents in a parent meeting, and I can see the looks on their faces, but I'm real direct with them. I say, listen, parents, we have them all together. Do this with 11 and 12-year-olds last year. I did it with 7 and 8 just last week. Listen to me. Your job as a parent is really, really simple. When you're in the stands, you get to cheer for your kid and our team as loud as you can. And that's your job, period. Right? No coaching from the stands. It doesn't help. In fact, it hurts. I mean, my wife will tell you. In the middle of an eleven and twelve-year-old baseball game last year, this was an all-star game against Gardendale. All right, good team. The parents were just yelling so much at my shortstop and second baseman. Field it here, do it that, do that. They're looking in the stands. They're, they're looking at. They, I walked out onto the field. And this was not a very Christian moment. And I yelled at the parents, "You are not their coach." Right. Right? And then went back into the dugout. They didn't like... I, it was, so I, but guess what? Now I'm going to have to see if I can do it. Right? I'm I'm going to be the 12-year-old dad on the bench. And I'm going to see William pitching on the mound and he's not following through. And I know he needs to and he can throw strikes if he does it and I can't say anything. Right? I've got to have confidence that the coach is going to do it. Or And that's so basic. But what about their spiritual lives? See, I think that. You know, we... We're, we're a mess in the gentle at home. We are a mess. We, you know, just, we, people, someone stopped me the other day and they're like, you know, da da da, what, what are you doing in your home with this? I said, our home is a disaster. I don't know. We, we, we just try to, we try to keep up. Um, and so I, and, and, and so we're, we, we talk, we pray, we, we're hopefully planting seeds, but at the end of the day, we have to be confident and hopeful, right? That he who started a good work, In his own time, in his own providence, will see it through to the end and bring them to completion and maturity. Because if God doesn't do it, I'm certainly not going to be able to do it. Right? It's a great word from Paul. Well, verse 7. Oh, I got to go, go soon. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Uh, This is, this is Paul, this is Paul being affectionate, right? I hold you in my heart. You are all partakers with, with me of grace. In my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, you're not embarrassed of my chains. And because you're not embarrassed of my chains, my heart's just filled with affection for you. God is my witness. I yearn with all the affection of Jesus Christ, I yearn for all of you. And this is how Paul demonstrates his affection and his yearning, even though he can't be physically present. So, because I can't be with you, this is what I want you to know. I'm going to pray for you. And this is my prayer. That your love. Love for who? Don't you love it that Paul left that nondescript? Love for God? Yes. Love for each other? Yes. Love for the world? Yes. That your love may abound more and more. Not just with heat. Right? Not just with on fire love and zeal but that your love would be measured by knowledge and discernment. Think Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards said, we need both heat and light. We need the heat of our affections to be raised to the reality of what Jesus has done for us, but we also need to have what? Light. We need to know what it is that we're talking about. Can I talk about that in, in the context of our, of our world? And please don't take... This is not a high horse. There's no, hopefully this doesn't come across that way. But are you not stunned when you talk to other brothers and sisters in our particular communion who do the same liturgy that we do every week? In Even though there might be some differences here or there. But by and large, we're doing Book of Common Prayer worship with all of these people and we're using the same language, right? About praising not only with our lips, but in our lives. We are unworthy to eat the crumbs under your table. I mean, the, the, the prayer book is loaded with Reformation theology about brought into the, to the life of worship. And then you, you talk to other people using the same language, and it's like we're talking Chinese to each other, right? Now we, we've got to have heat and light. To, to, and this is what Paul wants. I want you to know, you know, so that you can discern and understand. And approve what? What's excellent. So that you can be pure and blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. Filled with what? The fruit of righteousness that only comes from one place. That comes through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, that's the first 11 verses. We got there. Alright. Next week we'll, we'll press on. Lord, thank you for the book of Philippians. And bless our time together. Do something in our midst that we would grow more and more in love and in knowledge and discernment. That the fruit of righteousness that you have provided for us would just overflow in our lives uh, by your kindness and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.